Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I am your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this super exciting episode that we have for you guys today. Yes, we're so excited. We are thrilled to welcome back to Sky Talkers. It has been two years. Annalise Ophelian, the director of the docu-series Looking for Leia. Welcome to the show, Annalise. We're so happy you're back. I'm so happy to be back. Hello. Hello. How have you been doing? I've been doing so good. <laughs> today, I'm really excited today. Like after two years of doing the like, we're making this thing. It's coming soon. We're making this thing. It's wonderful. This is my first podcast where I get to show up and say, hey, we've made the thing. Here's where you can see it. And that is the best. And I love that I get to do that with the both of you. So yeah, I'm great. I'm so excited for you and everything. I think that hearing all this good news about the documentary and everything has been so good. I mean, we... I, the first time we met you was back at Celebration in uh, mm-hmm. 2017 in April. And that was when I, I I believe that Looking for Leia was still kind of this small project. I don't think that it was, it was still like in development and really beginning. And Absolutely. it's been such a crazy journey for both us and to like watch you, you know, grow and create this this amazing series that I'm just, I'm so proud and I'm so happy that uh, we're here today to talk about it. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, we, um, we like the first time we really busted our cameras out, like our first in earnest filming was Celebration Orlando in 2017. And I got to meet so many amazing people, the both of you certainly being among that, where it was just like, okay, what is this? Like, I, I think I want to make a, at the time, a documentary about this, this phenomenon. What's the phenomenon? And it was amazing <laughs> to like, it's, it's amazing to kind of do the Wayback Machine and think about all the people we've talked to and all the places that we've gone in those two years. Yeah, but you sure. were definitely like among the very first. And so that that feels like a really nice, full, complete circle. It's an odyssey. It's a journey that starts and ends in the same place. And yet you grow and develop along the way. It's pretty mythological. It's a very <laughs> parallel to Star Wars. I agree. I agree. Yeah. It, um, we, I mean, we've been talking to you now for two years, but this is the second time we've had you back on the show. And it is like... Charlotte and I have been talking about just how emotional the end of the Skywalker saga is and like, mm. how it marks kind of these benchmarks in our lives, these Star Wars films. Mm. But like watching Looking for Leia develop too over the past years has been the same way. Every time we get new announcements from you, I just, and Charlotte said it earlier, it's like, I just feel so proud to like call you a friend and to see this journey that you've gone on. And the fact that, you know, Celebration 2017, like you said, was one of the first times you were like really busting out the cameras and you know the podcast was super new at that time too and like the fact that we've stayed in contact and gotten to know each other better over the past two years I don't know it just gives me such a warm feeling inside (laughs) and that we've like all been on this journey together over the past two years in fandom and we've gotten to see you so much more as well and I don't know it's just it's it's so exciting and we are just over the moon, happy for you and the whole Looking for Leia team. Um, and we're just, we're really excited that you're here. <laughs> yeah. um, but so to kind of start off, there might be some people who are listening who actually aren't familiar with Looking for Leia yet. And um, like we said, you did kind of start this project back in early 2017 when you first started filming. And it's gone through many different iterations as the project has yeah. grown and expanded. So for the people who aren't familiar, can you walk us through a little bit of the developmental history of Looking for Leia and kind of where you started and where we are now? 
You bet. You bet. So Looking for Leia is a seven-part docuseries about women and also non-binary fans in Star Wars. And the sort of unique, it's it's shifting the lens through which we examine uh, fandom as a phenomenon and geek culture and um, really just shifting up who tells the story, right? Like, yes, it's, a, it's it, I like to kind of phrase it as like the Hamiltonian question, right? <laughs> that like, <laughs> what happens when we take a story that is like really kind of, you could just do it by rote memory, but we change up who the narrators are. Uh, and so it started as a concept actually for me after I went to my first celebration, which was Celebration Anaheim in 2015. And it was the first time that I'd had the experience of connecting with other women in fandom, having been a like, you know, geeky girl my whole life. Um, and generationally, I came up at a time when there there was definitely not um, role modeling or like space for that. Like I used to joke that I'm a 12 year old boy because that was the only role model I had for what geekdom or fandom was. Um, and so it was really interesting to me to be at Celebration in Anaheim in 2015 and be like, ah, I'm not the only woman here. Like I was fully expecting to just be adrift in a sea of fanboys um, and also to have a different experience with guys there as well, right? To be like, ooh, this is, a, this is different than I expected it to be. And it felt honestly a little unique to Star Wars fandom at the time. I'd been to Trek conventions, I'd been to zombie conventions. <laughs> so those are my other two big fandoms clearly. Um, and had never really felt anything like I did at that celebration. So that started this inquiry. Um, I then in 2016, as the election was ramping up, was like, I'm gonna need a self-care project um, if I'm gonna also be doing all the battles. Mm -hmm. that it looks like we're going to need to be doing. And I also wanted to do a project that culturally felt like it was in my lane, having just come off of a documentary feature that focused on the experiences of formerly incarcerated Black trans women um, and wanting to... Uh, you know, I do believe very strongly that people should be telling stories sort of, you know, that that bias for us is a, a really critical part of decolonizing filmmaking. And, and so I wanted to also locate myself in a place that felt really responsible. Um, and so originally it was going to be a feature film. Originally, I actually thought that I was going to road trip around the U.S. and talk to fans and bring that footage to Carrie Fisher's people. And they were going to be really impressed by it. And I was somehow going to get an interview with her to um, kind of wrap up the series. It would be a, a sort of, you know, this is where the Looking for Leia title came from, actually. It'd be like a quest documentary. Like, what does this mean? And what does it mean to the person who actually also created the role? Mm -hmm. um, and so when she passed, it really did feel like, oh, my my concept for this isn't going to work. And also, you know, it felt like the end days, right? Like December 2016 mm -hmm. was just such an awful month. It really was. It really the, was. And it was culminating years of like, you know, yeah, it was yeah. a bad time. It was a bad time. And it's 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 interesting that you say that because it was such a it was a point for everyone needed something to do to heal uh, mm. it, from Carrie Fisher's death, from things that were happening in the world. And that's when our podcast started, too. We had these kind of like interesting creative moments, I think, mm -hmm. uh, in in like this parallel timeline almost. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Right, right. And it was my partner who actually, I had tickets to Celebration at that point. Um, because, you know, the second the 2017 Celebration tickets went on sale, I was like, I'm doing that because <laughs> 2015 do. was so great. I was like, yes, more please. Um, and um, actually had been to, did Celebration London happen in between those two? I yeah, think so it did. I, I, I actually, I, I was on the f festival circuit with my previous documentary and I took a, um, I was a festival guest in Scotland at the same time. They were like, is there any way we could get you to Scotland? And I'm like, checks calendar, see Celebration Europe is happening at that time. And I was like, yes, you can. So I got to Celebration London in 2016. Um, and 
then 2017 came around and it felt really different, but also, yeah, like then it became a different question, right? It became about like, what has this meant to you? And I, I do feel like sometimes those moments of hardship or collective loss do call on us to come together, right? And I, I'm always encouraged by humanity when we do a good job of coming together and having each other's backs when something challenging or hard happens. And that was definitely my experience talking with women at Celebration. And I felt like there was something around our collective experience of loss around Carrie Fisher that did invite women to step into the center of a conversation and say, like, actually, this is what this character meant to me. And this is what this person meant to me, because Carrie Fisher had such a strong, um, she's, you know, such a unique and strong relationship to the character she played. And also, her own work gave so much permission to so many people who had been told, you're not allowed to talk about that. You're not allowed to take up space. Um, so yeah, we started filming in 2017. I had about a year of this is going to be a feature. And I feel like even early on, like you, I spoke, I came out to Boston and filmed the two of you in August of 2017. And even at that point, there was a, this needs to be a series. Like this is, I don't know where my central narrative that's going to create a documentary <laughs> feature out of this is going to be. Um, and so there was a lot of filming and then a lot of talking with potential um distribution sources at the same time. We had a strong interest from one source that really wanted to see it as a feature. And so I spent also that second year of um, filming and filling in the holes, also trying to format it back into a feature, which really wasn't terribly successful. Um, and then that that particular um, broadcast home ended up also the timing wasn't quite right for, for them. And and it was like, all right, this summer, there was just like a shift back. Like, great, we're going back into series format. This is all the behind the scenes. Like, it, it's no, taken so many it. different forms and yeah. so many different, like, you know, the and, and as a storyteller who's not a fictionalist, I'm working very much with, I'm trying to tell a story with the building blocks that are people's subjective experiences. And, and I work with in review. So folks also... Um, I'm asking this question, did I get this right? Is this an authentic representation of at least a part of your experience that we've got in this episode or in this section? Um, and and then this fall things just kind of wonderfully, or the end of the summer into fall things picked up and we found a really amazing um, broadcast home, which we're incredibly excited about. And we're able to find the, the sort of sticking point where we have these seven episodes I ended up talking to over a hundred women and also non-binary fans in the course of what turned into two years. Uh, I could have made so many more episodes. There's in editing always this kind of kill your darlings moment where you just have to let go of things that you are in love with. And in this case, it's like so many people's stories mm -hmm. that ended up not in these episodes that are just like exquisite. And I am like, yeah, it was it was a process of like, ah, we're, we're telling the stories that I'm kind of able to craft episodes around and, and get out there, knowing that there's um, for every one person who appears on screen, you know, another 10 to 15 on my hard drive and then like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands in the world um, in terms of like fandom stories and fandom experiences. Um so that was a, yeah, it's just been like a, it, this sort of abundance. It's been this like journey of so many stories and then figuring out a way of just like sharing a handful of them because we don't get to 
to hear those stories. And of course, the discourse around fandom and around women in fandom in those two years has shifted dramatically. And so it's, it's interesting to have been working on this. Like I like to say we made a pop culture documentary at sort of independent documentary of pacing, which is not a great fit. <laughs> <laughs> like ideally you like notice the phenomenon and within like, you know, 10 days you have some media that's like online. Um, and so it was also great to like, you know, for instance, the two of you gave us uh, this really wonderful interview, which I think kudos to your interviewing skills. Also, um, we got to film you in the first what, like six, seven months of having the podcast. And we talked all about like your own journeys into Star Wars fandom. We use like the tiniest fraction of that on screen. Yeah. Um, but it still holds up. Like you're in radically different places now, I imagine, than you were when we first talked. Um, and so there's a lot of that too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so funny um, because I do think it still holds up and I am so thankful that we're included in the documentary and all those things. But it's it's funny how much has changed since then. I think mm. that even in the conversation, we recorded with you for hours mm. and I I remember distinctly talking about how we hadn't experienced like the dark side yeah, of fandom yet. Mm. And we have, we have now, now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, like we can so laugh about different. it yeah yeah we can laugh about it but it's it's just it's like oh we've very much experienced it and that was post the last jedi and we recorded with you before the last jedi it's funny how that that funny funny is an operative word but mm, it's mm. funny how that is kind of this uh pendulum um yeah. or like fulcrum in the middle that yeah. where things kind of changed and i I'm pretty thankful, I think, for the clips that are included in the documentary because it, it is a glimpse of this time. And I don't ever want to forget what that felt like to feel like that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. I remember when you showed us kind of the rough cut of our of our section and it was like, wow, you know, that was pre-Last Jedi. That was, you know, back when the strangest thing about our show was that we talked about the prequels a lot. And like, <laughs> that's what um, I feel like people knew us as back in 2017. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there was so much we hadn't experienced yet in fandom, both like Charlotte said, the dark side, but also like the incredible communities that we hadn't yes. even stepped into yet, really. And I think it's, like the breadth of what your series is, has been able to capture from even the little pieces we've seen has just been like so incredible. And it, it really is just this wonderful snapshot of of women in fandom and, and other non-binary people and like what their experiences have been, both positive and negative. And I think it's really interesting how this how your project did switch from feature film to docu-series. And I don't think I even realized that you were thinking about that back in 2017 when you interviewed us. And I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that a little more. Like, what were the things that you were noticing in these different interviews with people that made you start to think about, okay, maybe maybe this will work better as a docu-series or as separate episodes rather than one feature film? Because that's such a different, like, that's very different storytelling. Um, and mm, like mm. documentary filmmaking, I'm sure. Um, so I think I think it, I didn't realize you were thinking about that so early on in the process. Actually, I thought that that decision came a lot later. So I don't know. I would like to hear more about kind of your transition from series or from film into series. Yeah, yeah, you bet. I mean, I think there's it happens on a couple of levels. One of which is um, 
it feels really logistical, right? I think we're in a moment where more people are see- watching documentaries than ever before. They've become very popular. They become unsaleable and programmable. And in terms of programming, that also means that when you're trying to distribute, people start looking for what they recognize as a um, as an entertaining documentary format. And certainly true crime has done a lot for this, right? Where documentary starts matching feature films in terms of being um, really sort of story or character driven. It has like a kind of arc. It has three ar- three acts. Um, and I'm thinking about um, Three Identical Strangers. I'm thinking about like all of the kind of tremendously successful um, true crime stuff that happens on Netflix where you're like, you're, you're captivated and you're in it and you're waiting for a resolution. And I don't make documentaries like that. I do very phenomenological documentary filmmaking. My work is very interested in just people's experiences and what it's like to sort of lean in and ask someone what their experience is. And so as I started talking with women, by the time I got to uh, New York in August, suddenly it's like, okay, I got like dozens of folks that I've talked to at this point and everybody is anywhere from like 10 minutes at a convention to generally an hour or two, sometimes four <laughs> in in like seated interview settings. How am I going to tell this story? Like, is there going to be a person who shepherds us through it? Are there going to be a handful of people who shepherd us through it? Um, and the thing I kept feeling was that in, in a Um, feature format that focused on a central character, I was immediately going to limit experience. And that felt unfortunate to me because I think often when we talk about women, um, the, the cultural stereotype or the media stereotype flattens, right? And so the imagination will unconsciously go to, okay, well, this is a person who's white, cis, het, 18 to 35, able-bodied, born in the United States, right? Monolingual English speaker, Christian, like you start like filling in all the spaces. Mm -hmm. And we know that's true because if it's anything outside of that, they get a preface, right? Where then it's like, well, queer women, women of color, women of trans experience. And, um, and, and so anybody who was going to be a protagonist was then also going to be limiting the storytelling. And I think we absolutely feel that in the fictional stories that we're all experiencing right now, because one of the things that happens when there's not enough representation, right? When those, um, when certain columns are deeply oversaturated and other columns are completely undersaturated is that people from marginalized or underrepresented groups suddenly hold a huge amount of weight and even responsibility as um, storytelling points, because it's like, well, that's the only one we've seen. And so it was hard to imagine how to tell the story without also shutting folks out of the narrative because they wouldn't be able to see themselves. I mean, that's still hard, right? Because it's very difficult. In documentary, I'm not inventing characters. I'm, um, in a way, restricted is the wrong word, but I'm, I'm limited to what's available to me, what's accessible to me, who I was able to get on film, how I was able to work it into a story. Um, and so I worked very, very hard to get a lot of representation of folks who don't get represented in these stories and there were places where i feel like i was more successful and places where i like no i didn't get it like i missed it and that's one of the like that's a shortcoming um so all of those conversations go into how do you tell the story how can i tell the story and then you know you're thinking about audience we are in a bit of a short attention span theater moment in media um I think that for filmmakers, we're often told documentary, like feature format and theatrical distribution is like the thing we're supposed to be doing. And as an independent filmmaker, that's often the festival circuit. And I actually, um, like I love the festival circuit and I also don't love the festival circuit. It is where the least number of people get to see my work. 
Um, and festivals tend to be pretty rarefied and pretty inaccessible to like a lot of different communities. Um, and so there was a sense as well of like, how do I connect this to audience? How are people going to see this? How will this be um, interacted with? And the feature format felt a little like, okay, well, at what point are folks going to get bored and turn it off? Or um, like, how do I tell the myriad stories that I'm hearing? And, and some of that structurally as well as like, how are people describing their fandom early on? I, um, the, the questions that I asked were very much about experience. I was not looking for a meta analysis of character or plot, um, in part because that just felt like a rabbit hole. Um, and because that's where people's subjective connection to the media is true for them and then potentially completely diametrically opposed to someone else's experience. Um, and, and that just didn't feel like the most useful place to tell the story from. Whereas like, how does this show up in your life? What role does it play in your life? And how do you enact it? Or how do you embody it? Felt really open and really like it invited people to see parts of their own experience, even if they were hearing something new. But pretty quickly, it was like, all right, well, I've now got all of these building blocks, if you will. And what do they have in common with each other? How could I weave a story together? And it was really hard to think of that. Like our, the finished product is like 86 minutes long. It's totally the length of a feature, but we tell it in seven parts. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that allows audience to say, okay, I'm maybe not as interested in this topic, but I see this topic that I am super interested in. I'm gonna jump in over here. Um, and it lets folks kind of bounce around a little bit. So if there's something that's just like, now nah, this is not my cup of tea, you don't have to watch that one. You can totally move around and find the story that you do resonate with. Uh, and that felt like a really permissive way to tell the story as well. And like it was a way of really inviting audience to, to touch base with us. Um, maybe also in the sense that like we don't always have time to sit down and watch an hour and a half. Like my favorite thing about like, you know, Netflix, Twitter, or, you know, streaming Twitter is when the thing drops and in the amount of time it takes to watch it, like 90 minutes later, your feed is just filled with everything. And, um, Yep. Like we're, 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 we're recording this the day after Marriage Story came out on Netflix. I've and so seen my, the whole movie. On, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my feed is just like, people, some of us have jobs. Like, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> like, I don't have time to sit down. Like, I have to plan when I'm going to watch all of this. So it feels nice to offer people a, like, there's 12 minutes. If you want to watch this thing, it's seven to it's seven episodes, 12 to 15 minutes each. So that was, that's a very circuitous way of saying a lot of it was structural and like how best to tell the story so that audience could access it. And so that I didn't have to really force story connections um, and force handoffs in mm. between stories. It's like, no, if your experiences of um, fanzine culture from the 1970s through the 80s and early 90s, let's not try to link that to droid makers. Let's like recognize that those are two different experiences. They get to live in two different episodes. I think the fanzines one is one of my favorites. Mm. I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through all the different episodes and yeah. just kind of give our audience a little bit of like preview. a preview of what, what, yes. of the, what the episodes are. Yeah, you bet. So our first episode um, is our sort of overview episode. It's where we establish the sort of idea behind the piece. Uh, and I think it gives us some nice little teasers. Um, the, the lovely women of Sky Talkers podcast appear in this episode. Um, <laughs> it's where we, I, I try to get a little bit of conversation about the different entry points and eras as well. Um, and it sets our thesis. And the thesis is that fandom is a kind of alchemy. And that it is the thing that happens when we love a story so much 
that we bring it into our daily lives and it takes on a different meaning, a second meaning, multiple meanings beyond what's just on the screen or on the page. And that there is something really amazing that happens when you ask someone why they love a thing and then you lean in and really listen to what the answer is. Um, so it, it's setting us up also that I think discourse around fandom and documentaries about fandom are often either very otherizing or they're very like put two spiders in a jar, shake them and see if they fight. And we don't as often make inquiries into, look, people choose to be fans because we like a thing, right? We're, we're not actually choosing to be antagonistic. Um, we're choosing to say, oh, I love this. This story means something to me. I see myself in it. I can dream myself into it. It soothes me. It comforts me. It like serves a purpose. Um, and this is in no way to say that our that media critique isn't a vital and important part of fandom and of just consuming media. Like I would say media critique is a necessary part of being a, a conscientious and aware audience member. Um, but to say that in terms of fandom, we don't ask often enough, like, why do you like this thing? And so that first episode sets us up for that. And that's the kind of meta episode. Um, if you were to just sort of watch one episode of Looking for Leia, you'd get a sense of like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing here. Um, the second episode is uh, the stories we tell. It is uh, focused on, it's the only episode that's like really focused on just a couple of women, um, Maggie Nowakowska and Tish Wells, who were both involved in fanzine culture. Maggie from the 70s, even out of Trek zines, um, and then Tish later in the 90s. Um, and the ways that throughout Star Wars um, as a phenomenon, like from 1977, hundreds of zines were printed, like analog printed and produced um, in that involved all of this fictional story, fic telling, um, letters of comment, meta analysis, right? Basically podcast culture, is, mm -hmm. as I see it, on the page. And they were written, published, edited, they were produced overwhelmingly by women. And so when we talk about like, why are women into fandom? Fanzine culture is always the, like, why are women just now coming into fandom? Fanzine culture is where I go to say, you know, in addition to, for instance, a teenage girl creating the genre, I can look back at, like with Mary Shelley, right? I can look back mm -hmm. at fanzine culture and say, no, women have always played really vital, um, and creative roles in in fandom and our fandom has shown up in this way. And that fanzines are also, I think, some of our earliest examples of the ways that the the stories exist beyond the source material. Um, there's an episode more than the basement that is about the kind of unique ways, and this is our this is what I like to call the kind of challenges within fandom episode. Um, so we talk about the fake fangirl test and the sort of unique ways that women's fandom is interrogated, but also about the creative and generative ways that women's fandom shows up um, and that women's fandom sometimes isn't seen or recognized because it might not look the same as what we are told fandom is, which is like the acquisition model. Like you're acquiring trivial knowledge, you're acquiring um, collectibles, uh, and that those are like benchmarks, right? The kind of gatekeeping model of, of fandom tells us you're not a real fan until you've done X, Y, and Z. And this episode is about like, okay, but if we, but, but, but maybe it's not. And if we don't use that model and instead say, do you love a story so much you want to live in it and create out of it? What does that look like? Uh, we then have an episode also on droid builders um, that features three women, none of whom had like engineering experience, um, but so saw, inspiring. It's so amazing. And I did not understand how 3D printing worked. So this episode is definitely a lot of me <laughs> being like, but how does it work? It's like full ray on the rock being like, it's a power 
power that like engineers have that lets you do things. I was just like, I don't understand a 3D printer. And I had to like, you know, spend really like a lot of time watching them and being like, what, it's doing what now? <laughs> but, the the way that and like honestly the first time I saw Nyla Brown's BB-8 it, when we were filming that episode and she turned it on and it started like beeping and turning around I fell over I got so starstruck <laughs> because <laughs> it's so magical BB-8 I'm like it's it and it's the actual droid like it is fully like in many cases they're droids even beyond what's on screen right because mm -hmm. they're operating independently and they've got the sound cards in them and they're doing all the things they're matching up the they're, they're using the um the coding to match up the sounds and the lights and um there's no puppeteer right like they're actually doing all of this like via you know this sort of like remote control and so droid building totally shows I think some of my own fascination with like wow women are doing what now and so that episode is, is very exciting to me we have a whole episode about the Navajo translation of a new hope as a language preservation effort uh, and so the voice actors who play both Princess Leia and C-3PO which I think it's kind of amazing that a woman voice C-3PO particularly when you hear a bit about how much that voice is actually present in that film um, as well as one of the translators Jennifer Wheeler whose husband Man Manny Wheeler is actually the person who spearheaded the whole project he was a story consultant on the episode um, and that episode is really near to my heart because I think it's about the ways that we take something like um, we take a franchise like Star Wars and our connection to it also creates a completely permanent time capsule um, because to connect your language to this thing that will exist, you know, potentially longer than us, like as a planet even, <laughs> is, um, is like a really significant kind of permanence. And it was also the first motion picture, the first feature film to ever be dubbed into Diné, mm. into the Navajo language. And so uh, the experiences, hearing the experiences of not just the women who were involved in making it, but also their experience of watching audience connect with it um, is a really significant story to me. And I, I'm really excited to share it. There, it happened in 2013, and I just feel like we can't stop talking about th that particular kind of creative use of, um, of popular culture. Yeah. Uh, there's an episode where we see ourselves that is, um, I think all the episodes are really talking about representation. And then we have an episode that's kind of focused more in on it. Um, and that involves experiences of cosplay, that involves experiences of um, seeing yourself actually mirrored on screen. And one of the stories in that is of documentary photographer, Rhina Santos, who did a series of portrait projects on both plus size women and women and fans of color um, at various celebrations. And what it was like for her to say, look, I don't see myself in this fandom, so I'm gonna create that media myself. Um, again, the generative ways that we make our fandom work. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the last episode, How We Carry On, is a, is our sort of like tribute to Princess Leia as a character um, and the role that she played in so many people's lives and also Carrie Fisher and the impact that she had in our lives. Um, it starts with a chorus of voices, but also then focuses on the story of a single woman, um, of, of a single subject um, and what her, and the way that she used the character and in particular, um, the costume, Princess Leia's dress, as a sort of transitional object. And I think that episode is in a very personal, in the in the telling of a very personal story, also about the ways that we use these stories as transitional objects yeah. um, and as ways of kind of holding on to things in moments of loss. Because, of course, moments of loss are one of the most universally experienced 
Um, like that's a really universal human experience. It's a thing we all go through at some point. Um, and I think it can be really healing and wonderful to hear about some of the ways that other folks um, navigate that. So that's that's the full seven episodes of Looking uh, for Leia. Yeah. That finale episode, <laughs> grab yeah. the tissues. It is so incredible. And I don't want you to give anything else away because it is mm-hmm. just so beautiful. And yeah. uh I can't really talk about it without getting a little weak. I love I love that episode so much. And you know, a lot I I do feel like over two years, like the there's this slightly we have a there's a there's a joke I like to make with the crew a lot that like our crew shirts should have really been making women cry since 2017 and it's because the the feedback we get honestly, the most often yeah. is oh my god I'm crying so hard and we are honestly not trying to make people cry um and they're not sad like none of these stories are tragic stories I think they're I really do believe Mm-mm. we told these stories in particular the stories in Carry On which we I worked very closely with our subject to be like look we're not trying to make exploitative tearjerker stories here we're trying to just tell stories that are really emotionally resonant um but I think it does say something about how rarely we get to see ourselves centered in stories and what it's like to have maybe truths or feelings that we've held inside for a really long time externalized and be like, oh my God, you're saying this thing and I was feeling this thing and I've never seen myself, heard myself, experienced myself um, outside of myself before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that, um, yeah, there's a couple of episodes and for me, Navajo New Hope and um, the, the, which is the what we preserve and how we carry on are the two episodes mm-hmm. that like you edit a thing and you end up watching it thousands of times. And I just blow snot bubbles every time. <laughs> like I would just be there, you know, like just tears streaming down my face, just trying to make music cuts and cues. I'm just like, I just, I, I get to tell my color grader as I get in with my colorist and being like, just FYI, even though this is on mute. We're going to get to a certain point in this and you're going to see like me start tearing up and making like puchettos and like my face is going to get really tense. And it's just because I know what she's saying on screen and I'm having fees. And yeah. it's, you know. That that episode is just so – there's such this like beautiful simplicity and quietness to it that mm. I felt like just – it it just encapsulated so much of what the series has meant like for me watching it mm-hmm. and then also just like knowing you through i don't know i just i think that it it's beautiful Thank <laughs> um, you. and i'm i'm really excited for for people obviously to see all of it but but you're right there is just something like so meaningful and special about that last episode that really like it, it just stays with you and it's such like the perfect ending note I think I don't know. I I love it so much. You're right. Like, even that. you hearing talk, I can feel like tears in the back of my eyes. <laughs> like and yeah, and, like, <laughs> I had to end yeah, my sentence. <laughs> I can like see the the transitions and stuff, and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> thank fine. you. Thank you. Um, I feel like that episode gives us a lot of permission to be where we're at in fandom yeah. and to have the feelings we're having in fandom. Um, and yeah. I'm so grateful. I mean, like I I guess I can tell a little bit the story of how we came to meet Barbara. Um, And then, you know, I'll tell the story of how we came to meet Barbara. And then if you're like, no, actually, we don't want to give away any aspect of it. Um, But, you know, very early on in the process of making this project, I had a web form on our site and it turned into a confessional booth. And so I would just get these emails from folks that had no interest in, they weren't asking for anything. They were just like, thanks for doing this project. I'm going to tell you my story now. And it was amazing. 
and such a gift that women would just be kind of sharing their often very personal stories that were very concisely written. Like, I'm just going to like, here's three paragraphs about like my life and fandom. And they were just stunning. And so like, maybe I will take this opportunity as well to say, like, if you wrote me a letter, I, I read it and I loved it. And also I got like hundreds of them. Um, as we were in the early stages of production and I was running around with the camera. So I tried very hard to write folks back and be like, this is so beautiful and thank you. And not always was I able to do that. Um, but one of the letters was from this woman, um, Barbara Lascano, who was, um, she, you know, sometimes these letters would come in and it would just be like, I'm going to tell you my Star Wars story and it is going to just hit all the beats of what it is you're doing this project, like why you're doing this project. And so I wrote her back and said, hey, is there any chance um, we might be able to have an interview with you? Like, would you like to be on camera? And she's not in the United States. And so at that time as well, there was this like, I don't know what my budget is to travel. And I'd had conversations with um, a few folks. I'd had conversations with folks in um, Osaka, Japan, in Lahore, Pakistan, like, like really amazing stories that I was like, oh God, I would love to be able to tell that story, but how do I, like, I can't afford at this point to get to Atlanta, so how am I going to get, you know, like a a little bit farther? (laughs) Um, But I pre-interviewed her and I was like, yeah, you're kind of like amazing on film. I would really love to do it. And then it just didn't happen. And then as we were editing this last episode, my story just wasn't coming through and it just wasn't coming through. Um, It was a collection of stories, but it was lacking that, like, can we just follow, can one person kind of hold our hand through this with their story? And so I came back to her and it was honestly this fall, like it was the first week of October that I was like, I'm going to get a second unit together and send them out. And I Skyped in. So I conducted this interview via Skype. I was in Brooklyn at the time. I was at New York City Comic Con. I like left the con for a day to like set up Skype with these like really great BTS pictures of like me, very Max Headroom style, (laughs) like (laughs) conducting this interview. Um, (laughs) And, and yeah, it was just like amazing. And it was like, so, so, so it was such a gift that she was so generous with her story and was so like, yes, absolutely. Come on out. Let's do the thing. Um, and it was meant to be, but it was just like, and then we edit and it took like a week to edit. That was the one story that was like, oh, we're actually doing pop culture documentary at a pop culture pace. Um, because we <laughs> have traveled, yeah, you know, like a very long distance to talk to someone, consolidated all of their interview material and cut it into this episode. And within like 12 days, um, in the first half of October, which is not that long ago, um, this mm-hmm. episode came together. And I and then um, the amazing um, artist, um, Maria Ortega, did art for us for that episode. And also all of these women um, who create really beautiful fan art contributed art to this episode. And we're going to actually do a whole social media thread on all of them because the um, it, this episode is like the Stone Soup episode where we just showed up and we were like, you know, we have we have a potato, but we'd really love to make this delicious stew. And then everybody was just like, here, here's my story. Here's my art. Here's the thing to contribute to it. And we're so so grateful for it. Yeah. Her story, the thing about Barbara's story is that it's not this, like you said, like she's kind of holding our hand through this process and and her story isn't this like crazy adventure or something that happened. Mm. It's, it's just like, it's something that even though I haven't been through her exact experience, I've, related to nearly everything she said um there was like this this beautiful like commonality in the way that she spoke about her relationship to star wars and and leia and again i don't want to like give uh, Mm. it away (laughs) because it is just so beautiful to see it unfold and like i said like that simplicity in it is just 
it's heartbreaking, but like in that really lovely way um, yeah. that you just want to keep watching it. And um, we had gone back. So as we kind of mentioned at the top of the episode, we interviewed you, one, you interviewed us in 2017, but we also interviewed you on uh, one of the very first interview episodes we did on Sky Talkers back in like June 2017. We were big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, we were, I remember we were so nervous. We're like, oh my God, I we weren't 100% sure if we knew how to pronounce your name correctly. <laughs> and I remember Nobody does, a, so you're in good company with that. <laughs> I remember having a conversation of like, okay, it's Annalise Ophelia. <laughs> and now and now it's like, oh, of course, that's that's how you say her name. Um but I went back and I was listening to some of the questions we had asked you then to kind of hear what your answers were. And even then, I mean, Charlotte and I often talk about how much we just love listening to you talk and we listen to you it's true. read you. the poem. Like, it's, 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 it's almost embarrassing how often we talk about it. We're like, she just has this like wonderful way of saying things. Um, but one of the things you had spoken about in 2017 was trying to see commonalities between what people are saying and and shared experiences and feelings within this community. And I know you've kind of touched on it as we've been talking um, here today, but I, th- I feel like it, it pivots really well off of Barbara's story too. So were there any things that kind of stood out to you at the end of this process that maybe you didn't anticipate being a commonality in the beginning of this project and now are, or or things that you were expecting and and you're like, oh yeah, that is true. (laughs) And I have all these hours of interviews to prove it now. Right. I mean, I think that the, the biggest take home for me at the very end of the process, particularly because I have you know, there's a way in which none of this could have happened without Star Wars Twitter, right? Um, mm-hmm. Without social media and my ability to connect with people um, in a kind of facile way. And what's what's interesting is I don't actually feel like there's a huge amount of Star Wars Twitter on screen. Um, like we're not, the, the, the project itself feels really different than um, Star Wars Twitter discourse. Um, the folks that are on screen, many of them are not particularly active on social media at all. Um, there's just like a lot, or they're like active in different places. Um, like they're in Facebook groups and they're like just not, um, it's not the, like if I'm on Star Wars Twitter, I have a very narrow view of a very specific discourse. Um, and this is a way in which often we can kind of like curate our fandom. And it also, you know, makes me think about this whole, like your focus determines your reality. Um, and, and so, and I think we, we, we all of us who go to cons experiences at conventions all the time, it's so wonderful to talk with folks in real life because the quality of that conversation is so radically different. Um, and this is, you know, as a psychologist, like also a place I often experience, which is like email and 280 character tweets and like all of this, we lose so much of the context and connection and humanity. Um, and it can often feel like we're all just sort of shouting. Like I'm as much a part of this as anything else. Like I'm I, like, I would say, you know, a 10th of the things I mean to tweet, I do. And then everything else I like type it out. And I'm like, eh, don't send that <laughs> because <laughs> like, are very like, like that could look, that could look, that could not come across correctly. Um, but I was just really struck by how, um, yeah, that there's a, there's a, a sort of abundance and a tenderness and a love in the way that people talk about their fandoms when you get to just sit down and have those face-to-face conversations. Um, and that was such a common thread. Um, and, and so, yeah, like it was, I would say that that degree of like, oh no, we can all 
seeing our faves are pro- problematic. Like it's a drinking song. We know every chorus. We know every verse, right? Like, <laughs> true. like those words, it's, it's without in any way having to like let go of all those things that we absolutely know are true because we're we're savvy and conscientious consumers of media and all the stuff that people's stories at the end of the day are small and personal. And that our small and personal stories, which have resonance and relevance to us, are also often either like, oh, wow, I'm having a direct connection to someone else. I've never heard someone else describe this thing in exactly the way that I feel it. Or it's like, no, I don't have that experience, but I can really feel the correlation. I can tie myself into that. Um, Or then my favorite, I don't have that experience at all. That's actually the opposite of my experience. And you've made me love a thing in a way that I didn't, that I actually didn't love before. Mm -hmm. Um, And that last one is my favorite. And I would say Mm -hmm. my own, like the gift of this project for me has been the lens that I feel like it's encouraged me to have. And, you know, I need to have this as a storyteller. Um, I have my own small personal fandoms. Is there a Kylux Easter egg in every episode of Looking for Leah? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, <laughs> does this whole theory say Rose Tico writes? Absolutely, it Good. does. Like, my own <laughs> fandom shows up and these just subtle, and those are aesthetic things. Those are like, I can just tuck that in there. I'm just gonna like, you know, I get to have my fandom. I get to like pop it in where I need to have it. Um, it's your project. But, yeah. <laughs> right, it's just like, hey, look, I've worked hard. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick yeah. this, this pin in there. Um, but that... <laughs> The, the, there's just something that's really great about being able to say like, hey, it doesn't matter if I like a thing or not. I can still like a thing or not, but it's great to listen to how someone else likes a thing. And I think we do, um, I think it enhances our experience and it's good for us to be able to hear someone else talk about the thing that they like and be like, wow, yeah, tell me more about that. We don't have that conversation as often. Yeah. Um and I think that when I would really then talk with women and also non-binary fans, and we can talk a bit about like that language actually, which, um, you know, the gender binary sucks. I think that's a universal thing. Like we can all agree with that. And it's mm-hmm. been, it's been definitely a point of navigation. Um, but the, I, you know, you, you talk to over a hundred women. So my N is over a hundred. I have like a statistically significant population study and at no point were folks like foaming at the mouth or like, you know, being really like, I, you know, like I believe in this and like these other folks can all jump off a cliff. Like folks were really generous and like, these are the things that I love. I can see that person over there loving a thing I didn't love. Right. Like we can, we can handle it. We can hold it. And I think online forums don't always encourage that kind of um, kindness. Mm -mm. Mm-hmm. And I loved being able like, I feel very encouraged coming out of this project and seeing like, no, that's, that's fandom that I see. And I do think we see it when we're at conventions. I think when we all come together in a big group, there's a lot of room for that. Um, you know, as not just a psychologist, but as a forensic psychologist, I can often see the way that folks comport themselves online. And it, it makes me want to like do a little bit of group work with folks. Um, and that happens in like, layers right like there's the layer of that that's about russian bots we can't do anything with there's the layer about that that's about people that are like actually sending death threats and are being hateful and are Mm -hmm. creating like really significant um sites of harm and um and that has absolutely shifted in the course of working on this project because the last jedi happened in the course of working on this project right Mm -hmm. um and and then that can happen in just like the ways that we're like gentle with each other in the more kind of conversational ways in the ways that like we don't actually have it's not highlander there can be more than one we're we're not we don't need to be um in these 
oppositional like super binary sets where like there's you know one or the other and there's nothing there's no room for anything else we can be loving and tender and celebratory in each other's experiences of the things that we love um and just have like really great fandom manners around that and i learned that lesson as well right like i was able to interrogate my own places where i was like wow i've been really like flippant with other people's loves and passions just in my like daily fandom experiences before I'm going to really change that. Like mm-hmm. I, I let, I want to like conduct myself differently. So I, I think that those stories of just how we actually interact and comport ourselves in fandom, interestingly, are what I came out of this the most with. And, and the way that women in interviews were able to just hold a lot of like, Oh yeah, I love this thing. I wish this thing was different. I know other people love this other thing. And it's just like, there we are. That's it. I I love the way you talk about like fandom manners and etiquette and how yeah. and and how that's not something that always gets translated um yeah. well online and and how that can be a difficult space to navigate because there just are so many um variables that yeah. you don't have control over. Yeah. Um, one of the other things when we were listening back to our episode from 2017 that I remember really resonated with me then and still resonated with me when I listened back to it. And um, we'd asked you what some of the challenges were that you faced as a woman making a film about fangirls. And you said a couple of really interesting and like really relevant things, I think. But the thing that kind of stood out to me the most is that you said like, you know, fandom is a big part of my life, but it's not something you always led with because you're worried that people might not take you seriously with that. Mm. And you said like fangirls in a lot of ways aren't taken seriously because women are craft and men are fine art. And Mm -hmm. like, well, (laughs) gut punch. (laughs) And it was like, oh, you know, like that just really stood out in this like really somber way because you know even like speaking from like the podcast experience like three nearly three years into this like sometimes it's difficult to express how seriously we do take what we do here on like in our little slice of fandom and how important it is to us and it's something we devote a lot of time and energy to and what can we do to take it to the next level so that it doesn't just look like this like Oh, well, they like like to talk about Star Wars, I guess, and um, right. like talking to people like outside of the community about like how important these stories are to like our day to day lives. And yeah. how does that not sound ridiculous? Because sometimes I feel like it sounds ridiculous, <laughs> even <laughs> though it's it's not. And this is a huge piece of of all of our lives here. And um, I wanted to know if like you've seen any change in that? Like personally, like you said, I I don't usually lead with how involved I am in fandom back in 2017. Has that changed at all? Have you seen positive changes in how women are treated in fandom? And and honestly, I think that that looking for Leia is such a representation of like how the conversation has switched around fangirls and like is a big anchor of that, honestly, because, you know, you'd also said that there weren't a lot of role models for you in filmmaking. And Mm. when I heard that last night, I was like, oh my God, like now you're a role model for fangirls in fandom going after this like huge, like honestly, it just like blows my mind that you were like, I want to make a film about fangirls. And then like, you did it. And like, like not just like this little, like not little, but like thing on YouTube, but like it's going to be on a network. Like it's, it's this huge thing. and, And it's telling this really important story. And like, that is such a positive thing in our like fandom community and like for like the population in general. I just think like, 
I don't know. I'm just like so proud of it and <laughs> to have oh, like watched you. you go through this journey. And like, have you, like I said, have you noticed positive changes in your own relationship to like public fandom in a way? I'm not sure if I explained that properly. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good question. I mean, I do think that it's such a good question. Um, I think that fandom is still, I think fandom has become more mainstream in the last like 10 years. Right. I think we can kind of look at 2010 as being this like, I mean, there's like an interesting kind of pivotal thing that was happening in 2010. I think a lot of that had to do with social media and for women as well. Right. Like that was a kind of big year for women. And and I think about like the hashtags around like geek girl and um, like her universe coming around and just like this sort of yeah. like, oh, suddenly you get like mainstream visibility. Mm-hmm. Um which carries with it its own stuff as well, right? Because like, again, it's not a homogenous group. And so you, right. th- there's still those questions about, yes, but which women? And like, how is that being shown? Um, but I do think that fandom remains a thing that isn't taken seriously. And I think that the last Jedi discourse actually showed us a lot of that because um, the way that fandom is reported on and represented in media remains a kind of otherizing experience and is something that's not taken particularly, yeah, seriously. And also, and um, Swapna, actually, Krishna says this really beautiful thing in the first episode of Looking for Leia, which is that like we live in a culture and a society where earnestness is not rewarded. Earnestness is mm-hmm. frowned upon and looked down upon mm-hmm. and you're uh. considered kind of like silly or stupid if you really love a thing. Yeah. And, and I, I was really like grateful for her saying that and like put it in the episode in a way because I was like, well, y'all are going to watch this and I'm ready for you to come back at me with your earnestness critique. And I'm here to say, or maybe we could try being a little earnest and try just being like, look, we don't have to find like there. And also because um, those things, that story of, of weirdness has been told a lot of times. And maybe there's an entertaining story to be told about weirdness, but it's been told in every single fandom doc. So I don't necessarily need to like dig into the weirdness because that's been, that's been taken care of. And Mm -hmm. it's not to say as fans, we aren't sometimes plenty goofy and weird, (laughs) right? Like I can embrace that. I can look at that. Um, But I, I do think that when I step out of geek circles, and I certainly am very often out of geek circles in my filmmaking life and in my professional life, I'll still hold that a little close to my chest. There has, there's this way of being able to like preface it still. So that doesn't feel like it's changed entirely. And post TLJ, I feel like the, the side eye that I'll get in like non-fan circles is this like, oh, are you like this sort of crazy passionate Reddit person. It's, it makes me, I frequently come back to the SNL sketch. Um, is it last Christmas that Matt Damon was the host and there's that whole fight over Weezer at the dinner table? <laughs> that is such a good sketch. <laughs> everybody YouTube this sketch because it is. it feels actually like what I think people think the discourse in fandom is all the time. And also because stereotypes sometimes have a nugget of truth. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, actually that does feel sometimes like the, the conversation. Um, and I think that there is still this interesting way in which I do experience myself as a woman being always having to, um, prove that I'm, I'm serious and valid and worthy of being in a space and not a hobbyist. Mm-hmm. And I can see the ways in which, and I'm making big generalizations here. And so I'm going to like invite guys actually who hold public um, positions as fandom writers, um, 
to like chime in right about this but i can see the ways in which um like who gets invites to media who like i I look at who's like at the press conference versus who's like consolidating every single article about the press conference Mm -hmm. and actually doing (laughs) the baby yoda's own work in journalism online and there's absolutely a gender divide there right and so like there is a way in which fandom you can be an expert and a dude and a fan and have that not considered Um, and have that considered more seriously. And there's something that always happens in marginalized and underrepresented groups where it's assumed that we are just talking about our group. So then we're in niche where it's like, oh, it's these girls talking about Star Wars. Um, And even looking for Leia, interestingly, like we're shifting who tells the story. There are times when our cultural position, our gendered experience absolutely impacts that. And those moments are on screen. It is not seven episodes that are anchored to our gender identity as the only way that we experience our fandom by a long shot. Like they're, they, when gender comes into the conversation, it's pretty organic and it's not necessarily like in many cases, it's like, no, we don't need to tell this from a woman's point of view because we're not making this exclusively about gender identity. We're just shifting who gets to be a sort of experiential expert and tell you these things. Um, and I think that that is still rare. Like I don't see that happen as often. Um, I think that that happens on a bunch of different levels as well, where I think that like men still get a lot of permission to be extremely like normal. Um, <laughs> and like, I'm going to, you know, be on the press junket. I'm going to be on the front line. I'm going to do all this stuff. There's not an interrogation about how I look and how I do my job. Right. Like let's all make a little mental note right now. Um, I mean, no one should ever read the comments ever, but I can guarantee you like 99% of them are going to be about how people look on screen. Men don't get those comments. Um, the idea that like, you know, who gets to be a journalist or be an expert? Um, like what age do you need to be? What body type do you need to be? What kind of like conformity do you need to have to what people consider to be palatable? Um, like those things haven't gone away and they're in no way Star Wars specific. Like that's media. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'd love to say that that has like somehow lessened. Um, I would like to think that what we're doing in Looking for Lay is creating a kind of permission. Um, I I do also think that I, um, yeah, there's a way in which women are regarded as hobbyists and men can be regarded as professionals. Um, that has not changed. And again, is not limited to Star Wars. That's the way that like sexism and misogyny play out in life. Um, and the way that if we are in a marginalized or underrepresented group, then it's like, well, you can talk about your group, but you're not going to come in here and do the mainstream reporting on like all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you can come in and talk about the interests that are specific to your group. Right. Uh, and we're just all pushing the needle. Like as media makers, we're all just like pushing that boulder up the hill. Um and I feel like every time one of us has a successful project or like a visible project, we get to move forward a little bit more with that. Um, but that is, that's the challenge. And it's emotionally taxing, right? Like, I'm sure that the both of you get to feel that as well. When you, when you see all of this labor and here's the other thing, oh my God, there's this like thing that really hit me working on the fanzines episode um, that is the ways in which women will devote huge amounts of labor to a thing, to a creation for not just free, but in a way where often we're paying to play, right? Like we're like, I'm going to self-produce this thing because no one's funding me. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and that that creation is like incredibly laborious. And I don't think you see that as often um, around like there's a, and the, one of the things that came up around fanzines a lot is like, oh, there's not a lot of dudes involved in this because they're not getting paid. So they're not going to do things that they don't get paid to do. Um, they're they're, they're going to wait and do the stuff where they're getting a paycheck. Um, they're getting credentialed um, where it's taken more seriously. Uh, and then, of course, there's a vicious cycle around self-producing your stuff because then it's like, oh, no, you are a hobbyist. Look, you paid to make that yourself. You weren't funded to do that. And it casts a, um, it, it does cast a bit of a, um, a question mark on it. Like, oh, is this actual media or is this like, you know, something that you've just made up? Yeah, it's, it's so cyclical. And mm. even though I got what you said back then about women are craft and men are fine art, it's like now I, I like understand it so much better <laughs> now because mm. while there have been. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a crappy terrain to be like, ah, now I know this. I, I know this landscape. Yeah, awesome. exactly. I can map it's out. a lot better now. But um, yeah, it, it just has been so twofold over the past three years because, you know, for as often as, you know, Charlotte and I have felt like hobbyists, as you put it, um, and like putting so much into this, there have been so many amazing like men and women and, and so many other people who have been supporting and uplifting it too. Um, but yeah. it still feels like, okay, what is next? Like, what do we, what do we do to take it even further? Because. Well, that little thing they do on the side. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, like <laughs> when is it not yeah. that anymore? Because it's, it's not that to us and like, clearly to like so many other people and like the stories you highlighted it's not to so many other people out there like it is something that's so important I don't know it just you you talk about it so well and and there have been there have been positive changes but then there's also Mm. still so much more to do and the way that you explained it Mm. was like perfect (laughs) Mm. yeah yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm sorry that it's perfect. <laughs> that's, a, that's the thing. And, and I think that there is a way, too, where I'm like, I'm inviting um, guys who are getting paid to do bylines and are getting access to press to, like, join us in this, right? Like, this is not in any way an attack on, like, who is actually being included in this. Mm-hmm. This is to say there's a lot of work that happens where, I mean, we often talk about, like, as women, we should be reaching behind us and pulling up the next person. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually the folks who are not... Um, in the group actually do that as well. Like that shouldn't just be my job <laughs> as a woman to be reaching behind <laughs> me and pulling up the next person. I think that there's something around the guys that are the executive producers that are on the press line that are getting the bylines when it comes time to make those, like who should we get for this decisions, make sure that you're like filofax of like writers and, um, and media makers uh, is filled with folks who don't look like you and that you're like reaching in and saying, look, I want to make sure that these voices are getting elevated. Like when you have some access or a foot in the door, that's a gift and that's an opportunity to then bring up folks that have more stories to tell and I think this is the thing that I think about as a media maker like all the time um and it's my um it's the thing that makes me like so crushingly sad when I see overwhelming cultural um homogeneity in creators because all I can think about are the stories that I have been robbed of like the whole of my life because I'm not getting to see 
the magic that someone who doesn't stand in that cultural footprint might have made because I'm seeing like, you know, and it, and it's not to say that like these filmmakers are not exquisite. Like certainly if I'm going to be like a huge fan of cinema, a huge, like my favorite directors are going to be largely like white cis head dudes because those are also the guys who've gotten to make the most stuff. And I mm-hmm. love their work, right? Like love, love, love. Uh, and I feel like that pang of grief all the time for all the stories that we've missed because we've not given those creators, like those geniuses, the same opportunities, those auteurs have not been given the same opportunities um, to, to get in there and to experiment. And like, I always like to use the example of Steven Spielberg and like the mess that was the production of Jaws and how like he just got to f- the shark. Um, I'm sorry, I'm right? going to leave that out. He got to mess up the shark. Family podcast, family po- podcast. <laughs> but he got to mess up. You can do the little R2-D2 bleep over here. <laughs> um, but he got to mess up the shark and people were like, yeah, you're onto something here, kid. Keep making it. Um, you know, it's, on average, every time I, I hear is- that, I'm so with you. I'm always like, yeah, Steven Spielberg was given the opportunity and just for like a, a whole summer <laughs> to yeah. like drive his production into yeah. hell, honestly, yeah. over budget, over budget, over budget. And thank God. Right. Yeah. Because that film is great. And I, I, lo- I love that. Like, the, I think the statistic still holds that there's an average of seven to eight years in between women's feature films, where it's two to three for men. And that is about funding and who's getting hired. That's Catherine Hardwick making, like, creating the YA film genre, but not being hired back for any of the sequels, right? Like, that's huge stuff. That's I, huge I feel stuff. deeply about that. <laughs> yeah. And that's a thing, too, that I think is not adversarial. That's not like me like going out there and like, you know, beating on men with a wiffle bat or something. That's me being like, yeah, the guys I know in media all share my horror at this. And I think there's often a sense of like, yes, but what can I do? And like, I will say this as a producer, what you can do is hire people. Um, so, you know, like I can also look at the women um, who made Looking for Leia and say, like, I got to work with the most exquisite team of rock stars. And because it's also independent film, it's like a pretty tight team and we're all wearing like 90 different hats. Um, but also that ability to be able to say, look, I've got a little bit of a budget and I can pay some folks. So who am I going to pay? Who do I want to bring? Who's doing the work? Mm-hmm. Um and that, yeah, there are the, these chances to do that and that that makes story better. I'm not doing that to like fill a quota. I'm doing that because I want to hear those stories. I want to see that art. Yeah. All these different perspectives are just so necessary. Yeah. What's one thing that you could go back and tell 2017 Annalise about now mm-hmm. that the project is complete? Oh, God. I <laughs> that might question so... <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. Um what would I tell 2017, Annalise? I mean, I think that there's that sense of, like, I still don't quite believe it. I think I'm still in the sense because also, like, everything came, like, we're premiering so close to the all of our kind of, like, acquisition stuff happening. Um, There's that sense of just like, wait, is this actually happening? So there's a way in which (laughs) I want February 2020 me to have, like, to tell me something. I'm like, what what words of, like, soothing would future me have for me now? (laughs) Because there is just such a stress around like working on this thing for so long and then finally releasing it out into the world um but I, I do think that, like, you know, we always want to just give ourselves that, that message of, um, like, you, you are actually, there's a light at the end of this tunnel and you're going to get it done and be patient with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that sense of just like, no, it, it's, it's, it's fully going to happen. Because in, 
Well, in 2017, I totally believed it was going to happen. 2018 self probably needed the, like, it's going to happen. <laughs> 2017 self was filled with all kinds of hope. And I was like, we're going to do a show. And it was like, you know, it was all great. It was that second year where you're sort of like, what is this even? <laughs> and and at this point, this fall, I think, you know, at this, I'm so grateful to everybody who follows the project on social media and who has been so generous and kind with us because I'm certain there's a degree to which it feels like my imaginary friend where folks are like, you've been talking about this for two years. We've seen nothing we don't believe this exists and so it makes me happy to be like no it's real we it actually exists. made a thing it exists it's <laughs> and actual it's great. Yes. And, and it's and it's going to be released in like a nice broad mainstream way <laughs> so exciting oh my gosh so exciting I remember talking to you back in 2017 about how the name Looking for Leia came from, and you referenced this in the beginning of this episode, um, came from the documentary Searching for Sugar Man, which is definitely one of my favorite documentaries. It's so amazing. If you're listening and you haven't seen it, it's so good. I know that your original intent was to find Carrie Fisher at the end. Mm. So I think my my question is, do you think that you found Leia? Yeah. I do. And actually, this is how I found her. Like, I didn't find her. My social media coordinator, Kayla Martin, found her. And the way she found her was actually in this email or DM she sent me when she kind of first came on board. She was doing a lot of our social media this last year as we were like going to celebration. Can you imagine being a social media coordinator that comes on the week before someone goes to oh celebration? My God. <laughs> no. And she as wrote a, me. As a social media coordinator myself, I cannot. She just had a just had oh my a God, it was so much. <laughs> yeah. It was so much. I want to see. I'm going to totally like I, I, she's I, she's not particularly given me consent for this and also I'm gonna find it and read it to you I'm gonna find you this DM that she sent but this was the thing where I was just like oh women are wise and this is exactly the point so um, so I'm gonna totally out um, like a small part of this DM um, and this is the quality of DMs that I get right also just to like maybe share with how much I cry at my inbox like all the time. Um, but our social media coordinator, Kayla, after I'd written a piece on um, the asking about my feminist fan agenda merch that we had done, the swag we had created for a celebration. And, um, and Kayla wrote in with this, just like she DM'd me with a like, hey, I saw this thing that you wrote and I just wanted to share a bit of my own story of um, like navigating speaking up for myself in spaces that then accused me of having an agenda because I was advocating for myself. And she shared the story, which is like really um, like frustrating and heartbreaking and also a thing that we all experience. And she signed the letter off with, we are always looking for Leia. May we find her in the face of every woman who ever stood up and made space for herself or others in this galaxy far, far away. I certainly find her in you. And there was this way that I just felt like that's it. Like we're finding this character in each other. And that's like, we find her in ourselves. We aspire to be her in ourselves, in ourselves, but we're finding her in the, in the resilience and the strength and the joy and the fierceness of all of the fans that are around us. And, and I was just like, oh, thanks. Yeah, no, that was it. I, I've been looking for her for the last couple of years and you totally just let me know where she's at. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. So I think the last question that I have for you before we ask again the Star Wars dinner question. <laughs> so you can kind of mentally prepare oh for God, that. Oh God, I have to get ready for that. I have yeah. to get ready for that. Yeah. Um kind of a bonus question, because I think that you've totally summarized and given us so much of why this documentary and docu series is so important. And I 
I have to thank you so much for your words about fandom and how we exist in the space. I think that I... I don't know. I feel like I will return to these words because I think that, I don't know, there's something like what Caitlin said about how we just love to listen to you talk. It's true. And I think there's something about the way that there's like, it's it's just so therapeutic to talk things out, injustices and things that we feel in a space that often doesn't really get a full conversation about why we're here and uh, yeah. what we're doing here. I'm just, I'm very thankful for you for that. So just mm. to kind of lighten the mood, since we're Days away from the rise of Skywalker. Ah. <laughs> so much stress, right? Yeah, so much stress. I just kind of wanted to ask, what are you looking forward to the movie? And is there anything that you are desperate to see? It's such a good question. So I realized as I was finishing up post-production this fall that um, I had not had time to adequately process all of my feelings around the end of the Skywalker saga. And as a fan, I'm having like so many feelings. Yep. Um, <laughs> And also, like, I came out of, I came out of The Last Jedi, like, for me, The Last Jedi was my Star Wars, like, it's it's my favorite Star Wars film, and also I really appreciate folks for whom it is not. Yep. And I think I'm going into The Rise of Skywalker totally prepared if I'm going to be holding that place that the folks who didn't have my experience of The Last Jedi had, right? Like, it's, I can handle if it's not the thing, I feel like I was fed. The, the last Jedi fed me and it gave me the things that I need. So that helps me release some expectations. Yeah. Um, mm. And I think that's my biggest thing. Where I'm just like, hey, tell me a story, storytellers. I'm ready for that. I've also just, I have also, through the course of working on Looking for Leia, really discovered the glory that is thick and the ways <laughs> in which if a story doesn't go the way I want it to go, I don't have to worry because I know within two to four weeks, all the fix I need are going to be there. That'll give me other places to live in the story. Um, so I think I'm going in to the rise of Skywalker with like my hands just very relaxed. I'm not holding on to anything tightly and I'm ready to be told a story. And I do trust these storytellers to like surprise me in some really good and interesting ways. And I'm also ready to just be able to be like, okay, this may or may not be the story for me. And I'm cool with that. And I think that might be also just like, I feel statistically like they've rolled the dice twice and done really great things. And so now I'm just waiting <laughs> for like, what happens if I don't love it? And I'm like, if I don't love it, it'll be great. So my, I've managed my expectations, which means that I might go and be like, oh my God, I love this so much. Um, and that will just be like really special and, and fun. Um, but I'm excited for, um, yeah, I just like, I have no idea what it's going to be. I think I joke a lot about how like, I am the opposite of a theorist or a meta analysis. Like I never go into these things with any clue what's going to happen. Like in so the jealous. Days, when, when Snoke is like on the, on, you know, in the hands of your father, Han Solo. And I like yelled, I was like, what? In the theater. Like it was just like, I am constantly surprised by things. Um, and so, yeah, like I look forward to just like sitting back and being told a story and being surprised and then figuring out all my feelings afterwards. But I'm I'm unprepared to say goodbye to these characters. I love them so much. Yeah. And I, I think that's the biggest thing. Like the, the trailers make me cry. I was like, I saw the second trailer in the theater like this fall and was just like fully crying. And my partner was sitting next to me being like, have a napkin. It's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I think like, that's it. Like I can't anticipate any more than just knowing I'm going to have like all kinds of feelings. And I can't believe it's so soon. It feels like it's been so far away for so long and now it's coming. I have tickets to see it twice on opening night. Too. Same. Which is a little bit of an exact and but I'm seeing it at 6 p.m. and again at midnight oh with my like God, a big table. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> and I'm just like, I'm just ready. I'm just like, okay, cultural phenomenon. Take me away. Let's do this. Yep. I think yep. you, like, you described it in what I hope like we have the reaction to, I don't know, like talking about that, that DM you read about Leia and like finding her and finding her in everyone else and like in their fandom experiences mm-hmm. too. And, and the fact that like this project started right after Carrie passed away and now we're here at Rise of Skywalker, which will be like the last on screen portrayal of, of Leia. It's just like, it, it feels so like completely and like almost cosmically full circle, like <laughs> within, mm-hmm. within like the looking mm-hmm. for Leia project as well and then also like you know finding her in other places and if the story doesn't go how you're thinking or hoping it does like being able to find that outlet in other places in fandom I don't know it just the way you talked about it layers really well um, as you usually do <laughs> um, but our <laughs> last question as you've answered before is our Star Wars dinner question which is where we yeah. ask our guests to tell us the five people that they would most like to have at a dinner party with them and anyone can come characters creators anyone um, so yeah do you want me to tell you who you said in 2017 before or after yes. you answer this question um, do it after. Do it after. But I'm so okay. curious. I have no recollection. But I do remember yeah. being like, oh, my God. And it's five. That's so many. Because I have one, two, three, four. Who's my fifth going to be? <laughs> okay, I've got it. Yes, I'm on. Okay. Okay. So who are you inviting that has to come to your Star Wars dinner party? Yeah, this is like I, – I, I also, I feel like I don't know how, how much you've asked this question in the past six weeks, but I feel like clearly I'm going to give the answer everyone's going to give. So Baby Yoda is my guest of honor. <laughs> wow. The Mandalorian is going to be there because he's always with Baby Yoda. Cara Dune's going to be there because I have a massive crush on her. Werner Herzog, just as Werner Herzog is going to be there because I'm not giving up the opportunity to have dinner with <laughs> Werner Herzog. And I expect him to talk in Baby Talk to Baby Yoda the whole oh meal. <laughs> and then I love it. either Kelly Marie Tran or Rose Tico can come. It doesn't matter. She can be in character. She can not be in character. I would just love to hang with her. And that would be like genuinely the most magical. And I feel like we would all just be there like making little flappy ear noises at Baby Yoda. And it would be great. Oh, Playing with little teepees, right? This is the first time we've asked this question in the age of the Mandalorian. And it just got really interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. And I don't know if you're trying to do like international non-spoilers on Baby Yoda. So, Oh, no, no, no. It's it's out there. It's the most memeable thing (laughs) that ever happened. It's what everyone is talking about. We know, yeah, yeah, we click on him more than like every person running for president. It's all this stuff. But yeah, I do feel like just be prepared for Baby Yoda to be the only thing people answer (laughs) for this now (laughs) for the next like months because, yeah. Well, in 2017, you had your your answer was super meta, which I appreciate. That, like <laughs> this this round of Star Wars dinner is like very much like I just want to cuddle Baby Yoda. <laughs> yes, it's simplified <laughs> things so much, right? Unified yeah. humanity, all of it, and talk to so, the master Werner Herzog. Like, yeah, oh God, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So in 2017, you invited Carrie Fisher, yeah. uh, but then you invited specifically Hoth Princess Leia as well, which I was like, whoa, Carrie Fisher and Leia at the same dinner. Amazing. And then you also invited Hera, Maz, and Chewie because you said yeah. Maz and Chewie go everywhere together. So they Oh my god, <laughs> baby Yoda and Mandalorian go everywhere together. I recognize a pair in Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Both of your dinners sound like really fun, but for different reasons, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Baby yeah, Yoda would totally a have a high chair. 
Oh, he, and oh. floating, please have, give him a hover high chair. I miss, oh the, my gosh. I miss the little floating basket. I do too. When, when he walks by that, I was like, pull that out of the trash and fix it. If you Jonas can dissemble your ship and you can fix it, you can fix that little floating bassinet. Come on now. Well, I thought he was going to take some of his best car and remelt it into a new baby car. Oh, God. And I was like, ready for the feels <laughs> on that, but he has not. No. <laughs> yeah. At the time of recording, yeah. Caitlin, you never know. Yeah, it's That's true. true. Who I, knows? We got a couple, three episodes left. Yeah. Yeah. At the time of recording, Baby Yoda does not have a best car baby cart. No. I'm waiting for the baby Bjorn. I love the fact that like he leaves him alone so often. And we're just like, dude, you can't do that. <laughs> Except please do, because every time you leave him alone, then we get Baby Yoda like toddling out somewhere having an adventure, which of course we just call it the Baby Yoda Adventure Hour, which is it's not <laughs> even an hour, but that's what the show is. And um yeah, that, and like how amazing to have gone through the full circle of everything. And now at the end of it, in addition to the, the Skywalker saga coming to a close and there's just like so many feels, we also have this child <laughs> that has united all people. <laughs> like it's, I, I challenge you to not have a reaction to Baby Yoda. So totally I, I agree. Find that really heartwarming and wonderful. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask, okay, so now we've reached the end of our interview with you and our discussion. It has been so great. And I wanted to know if you could give any details about where to find the the docuseries, where to find you, the project, everything. Yeah. So we are so incredibly excited to have found our home on the Sci-Fi Network. We love Sci-Fi and all of the work that they do really centering and celebrating fandom, right? Which is like what this project is about. So you can watch Looking for Leia in the United States on Sci-Fi, both on the channel and through Sci-Fi Wire. You can visit us on um, the interwebs at Looking for Leia on Twitter uh, and on Facebook. We're at Looking for Leia series on the Instagrams. Um, and I'm, um, you can find me through the at looking for Leia Twitter because I have a hard to spell last name and handle um, follow us because we are a good time on social media and love being able to connect with people and are really excited to be able to share the stories with uh, with all the folks awesome well thank you so much for coming on the show Annalise it is is always such a pleasure and we're so happy and so excited for you for looking for Leia Thank you both so much. And thank you for being a part of this whole, like you, you've witnessed everything from its, <laughs> from its very inception. And I feel really grateful that you've, got, you've been able to hold that kind of um, cultural memory for us. Really, really excited that we've reached this place. Yes, we are too. Thank you so much. And uh, for Sky Talkers, you know where to find us. We are at Sky Talkers Pod on Twitter. Charlotte and I have our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our uh, website, skytalkers.com, as well as Instagram and Facebook, wherever you want to find us. And Rise of Skywalker is coming out. Looking for Leia is coming out. All the good things are happening in December. And uh, if you like what you hear, you can follow us on all those platforms along with Annalise. And you can also leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't yet. Or you can head on over to our Patreon if you're interested in supporting us there. Yes. And I want to say a huge thank you to our amazing patrons. Joey, Jason, Fiorella, Marty, Spencer, Kathy, Gee, Jenna, Jessica, Mike, Thomas, Bridget, Shelbo, James, Kate, Nathan, Sam, Bailey, Eric, Kelly, Neil, Mary, Larry, James, Sarah, Susanna, Z, Cherie, Diana, Becca, Lynn, Katie, Courtney, Amy, Kelly, Jim, Suara, Bradley, Kristen, Eunice, Danielle, Matt, Eaton, Garrett, Debo, Irina, Edith, Jacqueline, Rachel, Lady Vader, John, Kevin, Ian, Raz, Lakshana, Candice, Ewan, Tom, Daniel, Heather, Brooklyn, Kimma, 
Jalea, Matthew, Captain Britton, Jackson, Carrie, Jackson, Raphael, David, Ada, Liz, Christian, Nicole, Jonathan, Rachel, Aaron, Brooke, Rebecca, Kathy, Ira Bell, Kimberly, Vundacast Productions, Christian, Adam, Megan, Courtney, Santara, Thomas, John, Megan, Kate, Matthew, Fernanda, Chell, Manny, David, Claudia, Kate, Lady Valkyrie, Jenny, Blessed Cheesemaker, Danny, Lumpararoo, Patrick, James, Hammy, Neil, The Dorky Diva Show, Megan, Stewart, Kyle, Jennifer, Kels, Chastity, Aliyah, Travis, Katie, Alyssa, Rebecca, Delaney, Angela, Ali, Natalia, Daz, Serene, Shireen, Molly, Miss Art, Rebuild, Matt, Jen, Jordan, Isabel, Camille, Amy, Jared, Claire, Brad, Caitlin, Rebecca, Helly, Scott, BJ, Casey, Lauren, Tom, Kirsty, The Clashing Sabres Podcast, and Chuck. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Sky Talkers is a member of the Star Wars Escape Pods Network. Explore more great content and get to know our sister shows at WeAreEscapePods.com and on Twitter at WeAreEscapePods. The Star Wars Escape Pods Network, promoting positivity in fandom.